Few rock and roll bands sway as much influence as Blondie. From the seedy streets of New York, the band blended garage rock, punk, and pop to create a new template for music in the decades that followed. Laying down the backbeat behind all the hit singles was drummer Clem Burke. A mainstay in popular music, Clem has worked with a diverse list of legends, from the Ramones and Joan Jett to Bob Dylan and Nancy Sinatra. In addition to sold-out tours with Blondie, Glenn continues to stay busy with multiple side projects such as The Empty Hearts with Elliot Easton of The Cars and The International Swingers with Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock. Currently on tour with his latest supergroup, The Split Squad, Clem spent a few minutes with us at RPM. Check it out. Well, I'd love to get The Empty Hearts there. Is that a band that's going to do some more stuff? Yeah, The uh, Empty Hearts actually, we're kind of on hold on writing, but we're doing... Uh, I think December 2nd, Cheap Trick are doing a charity event in L.A. and we're going to play at that event. Um, they have a Christmas album coming out. And we have a Christmas single. Oh, and, cool. uh, yeah, yeah. So um, we're going to do the thing with Cheap Trick on the 2nd. They're just going to squeeze that in. I think we're probably going to do the, uh, the Hollywood uh, Christmas Parade TV show at the same time. But um, we're planning on to start writing next year. I mean, to start recording next year. Yeah, but it's ongoing. Busy schedule. Yeah, I mean, this year for me, I've just been uh, been on the road most of the year with Blondie, and then right now I'm uh, playing with one of my other side projects, the Split Squad. We just we just played in uh, D.C. last night. We're on our way to uh, to Delaware, and then we're uh, in Asbury Park on Saturday, and in uh, Manhattan on Sunday, and then on Monday I leave for uh, London for the Blondie tour. Oh, so kind of getting warmed up here a little bit. <laughs> I saw you played a T-Rex gig as well this week. Yeah, uh, last year. Yeah, we had we had some weekend shows with Blondie the weekend prior in uh, Long Island and New Jersey, and then uh, because of scheduling, the rehearsals for the T-Rex thing were the Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday because of MD Steve Conti, who played uh, with the New York Dolls and. Uh, place with Michael Monroe. He had to go to Finland to do a show in Finland with Michael Monroe. Mm-hmm. He got back on Saturday and then the gigs were Sunday and Monday. But they were both sold out and both like really, really fun and a great group of people. Um, you know, uh, Mark's son, Roland, uh, sang a couple of songs with, with us. And I was in the house band with uh, Tony Sheridan, the bass player from Patti Smith and uh, said uh, Steve Conti. And then we had Ian McDonald from uh, the original uh, King Crimson, who also played uh, the, the sax part on Get It On, the T-Rex song. He played with us and uh, a bunch of people like that. A lot of guests. It was all guest singers, but yeah, it was great. Sold out. It was real fun. It's like a rock and roll circus, you know. That's awesome. We have uh, Mark Boland's Valino guitar, the all aluminum one, in my cafe. and that really. Oh, wow. <clears throat> Once I started looking at that, I really started going back and really getting into T-Rex. I, I have to admit, Get It On. I discovered through the Duran Duran project, Power Station. I'm an 80s wow. TV kid. Right. So, you know, I find stuff like that. And my dad, who played in a garage rock band in the 60s in New York City, he's like, son, that's the cover. And then go back right. and with real stuff. And it's yeah, right. amazing how much stuff was just recycled in the 80s from the earlier stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole the whole glam rock thing kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of informed punk rock. I mean, Bowie and T-Rex and all that. I mean, all the... All the Kids that were the punk rockers in the UK, like the Pistols and the Damned and all, they all were like into, you know, T-Rex and Bowie and, and Glam Rock and all that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, yeah I, read, so, uh, I read a lot of the CBGB screw was at the same Bowie show in 73. 
Yeah. One of those gigs that just everyone remembers as being hugely influential on the next generation. Yeah, it was pivotal. It was, I mean, I, I think I talked about that before. But I knew that Debbie was there and Chris was there and I was there. Joey Ramon was there. We Carnegie Hall the first time uh, Bowie came to the States to perform uh, Ziggy Stardust at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the glam rock thing uh, was uh, really influential on the whole sort of New York scene in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, in the state, I mean, I saw T-Rex three times when I was a kid, I uh, saw them open for, of all bands, the band Mountain at uh, the Fillmore a couple of nights. Oh, yeah. And then uh, I saw them in a club in New Jersey, too. And, uh, but people didn't really get the whole, for the most part, the whole uh, glam rock thing in the, in the States. It was kind of like, you know, minimal. Yeah, I think it definitely just clicked a little easier in the U.K. And, uh, yeah, well, you know, that's what I think, you know, I think with Blondie, we kind of filled the void. People were missing a star like that, like a Bowen or a Bowie, and, you know, kind of Debbie fit the bill, you know, and uh, the U.K. really took to us. Yeah, you uh, you broke commercially in the U.K., which I don't think a lot of people remember. You're still associated with New York, but, you know, the U.K. really embraced you early on. Did that surprise you, or was it a real comfortable fit? Well, um, you know, I was very much interested in, I had gone over to the UK uh, prior to the Blondie thing. I had gone to London uh, just to check out the music scene there, like in the mid seventies. And once again, the whole glam rock thing was kind of like, uh, it's kind of at the end of the end of, end of its uh, run there. And, uh, you know, um, I wasn't really surprised about it. I just, uh, it's a much smaller place. And we had a, you know, we were signed to basically Chrysalis was a British record company. I mean, although they had, you know, they had distribution and they were in the States as well. But they really came out of the UK, Cherry Ellis and Chris Wright. So uh, they were interested in breaking the band worldwide. Once we, once we got with them, they really helped us to kind of get into the international market a lot more. So, I mean, they had, they kind of, you know, we went on the road for like six or seven months, like, you know, with support and went into massive debt and things like that mm-hmm. with you know price of doing uh, business I guess yeah I uh, I married a London girl a year ago today one of the treasures I found all your original UK pressings of London oh wow in her uh, in her garage so when she brought it over oh. here, just like oh, oh amazing greatest thing ever <laughs> yeah I mean we still have a really you know really great base in the UK I mean we're just about to go and do this UK tour of pretty much doing sort of arena arenas and uh you know it's mostly ninety four percent sold out now the tour doesn't start till uh mid November. So uh, is, uh is garbage out with you again or is that just No, no, no. This that was like uh, something we did this summer. Uh no, this is like basically a, a headline tour. I actually have a band uh from Paris who played with us uh, when we played the Olympia this summer, the theater in Paris called Mustang. A little three-piece band that they're inf- kind of influenced by Buddy Holly and like Alan Vega and things like that. Oh, nice. Yeah, really, really good band. I mean, it's going to be kind of interesting because they sing in French, you know, oh. but they, they definitely rock. I so think, um, I think the UK can handle something like that, probably yeah. for the US audience. Yeah, I mean, the, their music's very, uh, you know, uh, it's a really combination of a lot of really interesting types of uh, rock and roll, so. Yeah, they're called Mustang. So we got them, and uh, you know, just to, we really didn't. Uh, we needed just someone to play, you know, for a half hour before we play. Mm-hmm. As I said, the tour went up on sale. I don't know. I guess maybe two or three months ago. It's 
just about sold out. The shows in London are sold out, and Brighton oh. Center, and a lot of places. So yeah, the the UK really, um, really, really, uh, you know, likes likes Blondie a lot, likes the band a lot, and uh, we spent a lot of time over there this year. Actually, we got signed out of the BMG UK, mm-hmm. you know. So um, uh, a guy over there, uh, the A and R guy, uh, Corba. Um, what the heck is his name now? He actually the band. He signed Muse way, way back when. And, uh, oh wow! Corda Marshall is his name, the A and R guy, and he signed us out of the UK. So we've been spending a lot. We're doing the uh, Jonathan Ross show when we get there too. If you know that show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, every time I go over there, I'm blown away. It seems like live music just has a more more support over there. People are still willing to go out and spend money on live concerts compared to what I hear in the states. Yeah, uh, well, you, it seems like they appreciate it. Yeah, they, they. I think they understand that you can actually have a career in music, you know. I mean, obviously, it goes back to, I mean, the country was kind of transformed when the Beatles broke America. I mean, the commerce that was created, you know. Uh, and then mm-hmm. I think ever since then, there's been a, a real appreciation for the, uh, the economics of, of the music business. You know, we, we just got this Nordorf Robbins Award over there as well, which is a music therapy uh, charity. And okay. we got... Uh, you know, I mean, they, they take it seriously. They take music seriously, and, and a lot of, you know, it generates, like I said, it generates a lot of, it generates a lot of tax for the, for the <laughs> government. That's why I mean, George Harrison tax man back when, ninety nine percent or something. But um, yeah, I mean, I just also I just I, I play with a lot of different bands. I just have this, have this band called the Tearaways that I was supposed to be the substitute drummer for, but I, I've been playing with them for a year now on and off, and they're from. Uh, Santa Barbara, but they go over to uh, Beetle Week every year, which I just went to in Liverpool with them. And we we did like five shows in Liverpool in 24 hours because they have like the shows that go around the clock because they have yeah, a giant, ho- giant hotel. <laughs> yeah, like they do those all-nighters in the hotel and they have all these little mini ballrooms and stuff. So bands are playing all kind of like Vegas. Bands are playing all through the night. Yep. Things are going up. You wouldn't <laughs> think in Liverpool though. And yeah. Uh, and so uh, we got a little more ambitious with this uh, time going over there, and we wound up playing about eight other shows around the country. We did a couple in Ireland, and we did uh, like Bristol and London and Manchester. And uh, and uh, just but my point is that, that the, the, the English-British audience really kind of took to the band. They were kind of just a quirky American band. They write songs about John Wayne and all kinds of weird stuff, but there was an appreciation for what the band was doing and, uh, you know, kind of took it uh, basically on face value. Like, this, yeah, this is a good band. It's fun. It was kind of like a pub rock type of thing. So um, you find people turning out for the music and, and, and taking it a little more. I mean, you know, I'm, that's, I'm talking about rock and roll, really. I'm not talking about whatever. I mean, pop music is an industry everywhere. But, uh, yeah, people come out, go out, turn out for the clubs in England a lot more, it seems like. Well, I'm I'm playing different kinds of music at different times, you know. I mean, uh, with the Empty Hearts, you know, we all we co-write together, and it's uh, supposed to be like a full-on, you know, rock and roll band. And uh, you know, uh, no, I don't know if I really do. I mean, with with Blondie, you know, the songs are a lot of them are a lot more uh, dance-oriented nowadays. I mean, uh, things like that. But I I don't necessarily do. I think I just enjoy the process of of, of performing, you know, playing, and like I said, the thing like this gets me uh, up and running for the Blondie tour instead of like being home sitting on the couch or something, you know. So, but it's been this year; it's been incredible. I've been like been all over the place playing. It's it's fun. Oh, it's the, cut- uh, 
How did the tour with Garbage come about? I thought that was just like a perfect pairing in terms of a band that was so clearly influenced by you, but still relevant. It was just a really nice pair for the whole tour. Yeah, well, we're friends. And Shirley, actually, you know, she inducted us into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, Debbie was uh, had her solo thing going in, I think in the 90s, she was managed by a guy called Gary Kerfitz, who also managed a band called... Uh, I don't want to get, I'm not, if I can get it completely, Mr. McKenzie or something like that. And uh, Shirley was the singer in that band. And then Debbie mm-hmm. and Shirley met Ben. And uh, then I met uh, Butch and uh, Shirley, you know, through like uh, mutual friends. And we were already friends. So, uh, and they were about, you know, they had this book that they wanted to promote. And they wanted, I guess they're making a new record. They had a new single on the tour. So mm-hmm. it's, it was a pretty good fit. It's a pretty good fit. And uh, the bands are just different enough, but, but similar in, in a lot of the aesthetics. And it was good. Yeah, that worked out really well. So that's the show that you saw in Vegas? Yeah, I was at the uh, the Palms for that show, which is the yeah. best ve- venue in Vegas. So it was just incredible oh, yeah. to see both bands together. And then John Doe. I mean, what a lineup. I was blown yeah, away. Yeah, it was good. We were trying to get John and Xena to come to England with us, but I don't know, it didn't work out for them because... I guess you know, X just had a giant exhibit open at the Grammy Museum in L.A. Nice. And they've been doing the anniversary tour as well. Yeah. Yeah, so they've got some, some of their own business to do with X, and that's good for the other two guys, you know. I saw them in New York. They were great. They were such a great band. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pollinator turned out really well. The collaboration seemed to work. The Donnie Marr cover was just spot on and then yeah just it felt more live i mean i know these days most bands are recording computers but it had a live off the floor feel to it that i haven't heard in a while from bands is that something you're consciously going for oh yeah absolutely i've been i've been consciously going for that ever ever since we started recording the other way i mean uh i was really disappointed with the uh production on the on the last two prior albums the songs were great I mean, I've been saying this before, when we, we were found ourselves reinterpreting the songs uh, in a band context, the songs from the albums that two prior, Ghosts to Download and Panic of Girls, um, but they were computer generated for the most part, and we kind of like recorded on top of the demos, and we, we were really never really together in the studio uh, most mm-hmm. of the time, and uh, like I said, when we reinterpreted the songs live, like we have a really good band, it's probably the at this point, probably the best version of, of the band as far as musically. And uh, I miss my my old friends from the, from the you know, original band. And uh, mm-hmm. But the two, the guys, Lee and uh, Tommy and, and Matt, that we have now, they're all really great musicians. And uh, so we found when we did the songs from those other albums, they really came to life when we uh, played them as a band. So I've, I've been pushing for this forever to just get in the studio together, which is what we all went in the studio. We were there together the whole time, and we did the basic tracks together, and we did the pre-production, uh, you know, along with John Congleton, the, the producer, and we were doing, you know, spent a couple of weeks doing pre-production. We did it very much the way we used to do it, and I think, uh, you know, the sound of the album kind of reflects that, and people are saying how much they uh, really like uh, us, that feeling, like what you were saying about, like, a, with a band doing the song. Yeah. And, uh, we got a great, and you know, we had a little more objective uh, outlook too because of the, so many outside writers, which we never really did before. Although we always do cover songs. We did, you know, Hanging on the Telephone's a cover, Tide is High is a cover, and, you know, Vinny, uh, Vinny, Debbie Found, you know, Randy and the Rainbow. Yeah. So we always had a history of, of co- and then when, back when we first started, we used to do all kinds of cover songs, you know, Doors or, or you know, all kinds of stuff. 
So, um, yeah, no, we're really happy with this album. I think that's why we, uh, we're out working all year, out and playing all year and, and, and finding the audiences being really receptive to the, to the new music. In a way, not to, not to sound too, you know, business-like about it, but it kind of rebranded the band in a lot of ways. You know, it was much more of a higher profile for this album because people seemed to be taken to it and with uh, the new record deal that we did with BMG in the UK, they, they were about, you know, marketing the, the band and marketing the record and they were really happy with the, with the results and, and uh, you know, we're going to continue. We're going to do another record next year. And so, um, you know, but, you know, we always play. We're always touring for the most part. And, uh, you know, a lot of times not, not in this part of the world, you know, not in the U.S. So uh, I think it kind of, you know, we did a couple of TV shows here in, uh, in the States. And, uh, yeah, things are good within the band, you know. Do you think doing new albums and staying creative is important to uh, going out on the road to bring something new to the shows? Because a lot of bands can just go out and play the old hits and just go through the motions, but you seem to be pushing for something more creative and something new, and it seems to translate into live shows. That you know, If you were just doing the hits, do you think you'd get a little bored with it? Well, yeah, certainly there's a, a much more of an artistic attitude within the band of, of always kind of being creative and that. Uh, that was kind of like uh, when we first got back together in the late 90s, that was the kind of prerequisite for, the, for Debbie, Chris, and I and at the time was to, to make a new record and not to uh, just go out and, and do the, the hits. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, writing and recording uh, before we went out. And then right before the album came out, we did a tour in the UK in, in I think, 98. And, uh, you know, we placed a lot of the song, new songs on that tour that weren't even released. And uh, then we had Maria, which was a big success for us, a big number one around a lot of parts of the world. And uh, yeah, that's always been the, uh, it's always been the impetus, always been the muse. It's always to be creating, you know, new and then have, uh, of course, the great catalog of songs. We're actually thinking about exploring a lot of the deeper cuts on the, on the past Blondie albums for uh, something a little different coming up maybe in the new year uh there's a lot of songs that we don't play that are, are really good songs and uh you know i mean i don't sit around listening to old blondie's records but uh we're kind of like investigating a lot of deeper tracks but uh yeah new music's real important real important i mean the, obviously you already know the business plan's kind of gone upside down you know it's like before the, the tour was a you know uh, the tour promoted the uh the record now the record kind of promotes the tour you know mm-hmm. Merchandise, you, you know, reviews. Uh, the key. Yeah, it's all about the T-shirt. <laughs> it's all about the T-shirt. Yeah, mm. you know, all that kind of. I mean, we give away music, but you know, you charge fifty bucks for a T-shirt. It's kind of insane in a yeah, lot of ways. You know, it's almost necessary though these days, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the business plan. I mean, if you if you look back, actually, that's what like bands like the Grateful Dead and uh, the Ramones were all about. You know, they they never really neither one of those bands had never really had massive hit hit after hit after hit, you know. Mm-hmm. And but they were always like playing live and they were always selling merch, you know. So it's kinda yeah. like they were ahead of the game in a lot of ways as far as how a band can survive. Just all of a sudden it was a big wake up call for for everyone. You know, especially all these heritage artists, you know, people like us, mm-hmm. oh well all of a sudden the catalog is not selling like the way you thought it was gonna go on in perpetuity and and, and you know, nothing lasts forever. So things change. Yeah, so it's a big I work with a band out of Canada called Cowboy Junkies, and uh, oh yeah, from day one they've always allowed taping of their shows. And, you know, yeah, right, exactly. On, even on their website, we'd be trading shows and stuff, and 
it built a fan base that has stayed loyal and they're still selling out the small theaters and stuff. And I think a lot of that has to do because they were very open about sharing the music. Knowing right. that long term, the ticket sales and merch sales would still be there. And yeah, I mean, the fans seem to still tour like that. You know, they had that outlook. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of very rare. I think like with the Grateful Dead, they had that Dick's Picks guy or something. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that people would be marketing bootlegs, but in general, most of the people that would be recording the music would be doing it for their own enjoyment and, uh, you know, to prohibit all of that. And Of course, now, I mean, I get like with the, like kind of with comedians kind of not wanting people to record their club appearances, like, you know, the jokes can get stale very quickly, you know, like in, and the jazz guys don't really like like it too much because, you know, the, a lot of them, you know, they're doing, uh, I mean, back not that long ago, I think a big part of like a, a, a jazz musician thing would be doing like, you know, tutorial videos and things like that, you know, like, you know, that they would uh, be selling. And then, you know, you can go and watch your, somebody like Vinnie Carluta or something. If you, you know, if you're recording him on your phone, you can get a lot of ideas about, you know, his drumming technique and all, you know, kind of, I can understand that, but I, I think, there's there's not a workshop atmosphere out there anymore. You know, I can imagine like, and also the whole everyone everyone tries to be so politically correct. And I can imagine if Lenny Bruce was around today, how it would be for him. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, he, and and you know, comedians they say a lot of a lot of provocative kind of off color crazy non PC things. It's part of what comedy is. And now you know somebody records that and puts it up on the on the net, and then you know, people take it get taken aback by it, and it becomes a whole other thing and uh <clears throat> that was great for us back in the day because you know like cbgb to me was kind of like a, it was like a workshop you know you can make your mistakes in public and i think it's kind of important to as you get used to being on stage and being in front of an audience to be able to feel comfortable you know and, and be able to make a mistake and not not really worry about it you know instead of you know sitting at your computer all day and making sure everything is completely in time and synced up and computerized and you know kind of made music had become a different thing, you know, like less communal and more uh, kind of private in a lot of ways, which uh, I think is a big problem for like millennials in general. You know, there's too much of uh, inward looking inward instead of outward in a lot of ways. I agree. And everything's become very, doesn't seem to be, I don't know, if you're into one type of music, you just get so close with me to that because Spotify keeps feeding you the same stuff. And then, yeah, right. That's true. All the different genres and you kind of lose something with that. Yeah, it's kind of gone to that next phase because in a while, because, you know, like, like when you see vinyl DJs and things like that, like in clubs, it's like what Morpheus does. I don't know if he just one, does one kind of music. I mean, I think I've seen you just playing all sorts, you know, segueing. I mean, I DJ. I DJ at the Golden Tiki in Vegas a few times. Oh, nice. I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I'll play like oh, the Ramones, nice. ne- Ramones next to the Bee Gees, next to Bobby Darren. You know, it all kind of seems to work together next to a craft work or something. But, um yeah, um, the music is kind of, uh, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate in, uh, you know, the success we had with Blondie and we're able to kind of have a career. And I mean, it's kind of funny. I would say I'll give it another 18 months, but I've been saying it for like over 40 <laughs> years now. So I guess it'll just, uh, it kind of taken on a life of its own in a lot of ways. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, after Blondie kind of read up in the 80s, you played, I mean, the list was staggering from Dylan and John Jed, Eurythmics and... You know, the the comparisons to Keith Moon, everyone's always, Keith Moon was my influence, and I can see that a lot in your playing, but Hal Blaine comes to mind because you've played with so many different styles, and to adapt with that as a drummer, has that been a challenge at times? 
Um, well, you know, early on with Blondie, when we started to explore dance music or, or so-called disco music, I was like more of an advocate of rock and roll. But, uh, mm. you know, you have to kind of be open-minded about things. And, uh, yeah, I mean, usually when I get asked to work with someone, it's because they like what I do, whether it be Nancy Sinatra. I mean, she came and saw me play with Blondie and asked me to record with her. And then we went, we did an amazing European tour. Uh, with uh, Don Randy, her MD, who was actually in the Wrecking Crew, so I got to read. Oh, wow. And Nancy has all of Hal's, uh, has, she has all the charts to all her music, all her songs. So I would get to see Hal Blaine's charts and kind of follow along, you know, on certain songs. And we used to do Drummer Man, which is like one of her songs that Hal plays on, where he does a drum solo. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Hal and you know, and Earl Palmer were my my, you know, unbeknownst to me, I always say because they were the session musicians that really weren't credited. In the mm-hmm. '60s, but between you know, we're all played on like with Eddie Cochran and and Richie Valens, and of course all like with that all of that Domino stuff and Little Richard, and then Hal playing on like all the like, you know like from the Beach Boys to the Monkees to uh, you know Phil Spector and uh, you know both the, they were had very big influence on me and really they were the main drummers that influenced people like Ringo and Charlie Watts. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like that musical food chain kind of exists. But um, no, Keith. Um, the thing I liked about Keith, and I also liked about Ringo, was they they were rock and roll stars. They weren't just the drummer in the back, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's always kind of been important to me. You know, when I was a kid, I loved the Dave Clark Five. You know, the drummers in the front. I had a like one of my first drum kits was very similar to a, a White Rogers Marine Pearl kit that Dave Clark is playing on the cover of uh, this album, Dave Clark Five Coast to Coast, and uh, you know. Um, yeah, Keith also, I always say, told me what not, showed me what not to do in the end of the day. I was surprised when I worked with, with Pete how much he was reminiscing about Keith with me. It was pretty staggering to be in a room with Townsend and be jamming on songs and have him keep talking about Keith. So I didn't really expect that. So, uh, yeah. Nice. But I did play with a lot of different, I, mean, I worked with a lot of different people, but the, um, the thing I really did enjoy the most was my, my working relationship with uh, with Eurythmics. You know, I, I kind of made some really good friends from that as well uh, with Dave and Andrew, my friends, you know. And, uh, you know, I did the first album in Germany with them when at, kind of at the height of Blondie. I was living in London because we had gone sort of on hiatus with Blondie. And uh, I was living in London and I met Annie and uh, she invited me to uh, come to a Sunday lunch with her, she and Dave and... Uh, you know, I had to go to Germany, and so I got to work with Connie Plank, who produced, you know, Kraftwerk and Devo, and Holger Zukai, who unfortunately just, just passed away, um, plays on the first Eurythmics record with us, and uh, first time we were on TV, they were on TV on Old Grey Whistle Test in the, uh, in the UK, Holger, Holger Zukai from Chan uh, played French horn with us, so I had a lot of really great musical experiences with Eurythmics, you know, I, I just played at Dave Stewart's 65th birthday party, and uh, Shepherd's Bush uh, Empire in London. He had a, we had the three drum sets set up. Martin Chambers from Pretenders played, and Chad Cromwell is his uh, drummer with uh, with Dave now. And Chad's like a natural guy to play with, like Neil Young and people like that. And uh, had a really good time at Dave's. Uh, he did a gig for his birthday. It was really fun. But um, that was one of the most rewarding things that I ever did, though, because Annie is such a such a magnificent talent. I mean, as, you know, as well as. As Debbie, but Annie's a little different. Like she was trained, you know. She went to the Royal Academy of Music, and she's a flautist and uh, you know pianist and uh, really amazing musician. Really a great, great woman. You know, it's kind of cool. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of those 80s artists, they just because everything was all MTV driven and stuff. And I grew up on that era. Right. Musicians and songwriters happening that I think a lot of people didn't give credit for because they're like, oh, it's on MTV. It's silly, but it's not. There's some brilliant musicians at the time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and with Eurythmics, it was interesting because we did, I did a tour with them that lasted a little over two years. And we spent maybe six weeks of that two years in the States. I mean, we were playing like football stadiums in Stockholm and things like that. So they didn't really work the state as much as, as you would think uh, that they would or have had done. And uh, they're up, actually up for uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year, so I'm going to definitely vote for them. I have a feeling. I don't know what's going to happen. Everybody I vote for, never get. no one ever gets in, the people that I vote for. Yeah, I think I keep jinxing the cars when I vote, so I'm going to lay low. Yeah, we've been trying to get the cars in, you know, because it would be good for the empty hearts, being, you know, L.A. East and yeah. the guitarists and the empty hearts. And so that I just did a, the T-Rex thing. I got to play with uh, Dennis Dunaway, who's in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Alice Cooper's bass player. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of cool when a couple of different, and of course, Glenn Matlock, when I have the band with him, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So you kind of look at that and go, wow, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of cool. And, and I mean, it was a, it meant a lot to me when we got inducted and then the whole, catastrophe of the, uh, you know, my friends, the ex-members, I mean, doing what they felt like they needed to do kind of made the whole thing a little strange, but, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> uh, I got to throw one more at you just because it's, uh, my wife will kill me, but I always do it because I grew up on Duran Duran and I always remember hearing right. about them support you. So right. do, you, do you have any memories of working with them on that tour and helping them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were about to go back to, uh, to the UK because they were on a club tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nigel Harrison and, and myself, we saw them play maybe at the Ritz in New York at the time and uh, just kind of like kind of approached them about uh, coming on tour with us. It was kind of a strange thing because they really were uh, growing in their popularity as as we were kind of ebbing on that tour. So uh, <clears throat> it was a little funny. I got a couple of probably a couple of X-rated stories. I don't really want to go into at the moment, but I mean, those guys, they were, they were nice. They were nice kids. You know, they were a little bit naive, but you know, we used to hang out and whenever I see, especially John Taylor, you know, mm-hmm. it's great to see him, but the, it was kind of, it kind of, was kind of a pivotal moment for them in the U S because, uh, you know, supporting Blondie on that tour. Oh, and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a big thing for them. And that, of course, that was, uh, Right after that tour is when we ended for some time. And coincidentally, our last gig at that time was at RFK Stadium in Philly with, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, Genesis, Elvis Costello, and Flock of Seagulls. That was the last gig. <laughs> and then I was just talking, because this summer we supported Phil Collins in some giant gigs in England. And so I was talking to Phil about how you know, it had kind of come full circle, like, we had stopped at a Genesis gig now, like at the height. Now we're now we're playing to 75,000 people in Hyde Park as special guests for Phil. Yeah. We might we might be doing more stuff, and some people might say, you know, what did Blondie and Phil Collins have in common, and especially in the UK? And the answer is, you know, hit records. You know, yeah. oh, that's another that, part of that, Blondie in the state in the UK. What's that? Go ahead. Back to the US, that would be a massive tour. People would give enough. Yeah. We're talking about maybe going to South America with him next year. Um, but his crew and, you know, his 16-year-old son is the drummer, which is kind of phenomenal. Mm-hmm. But um, so anyway, um, <clears throat> I think I'm going to have to take off now because of what I'm leaving from the from D.C. here with the rest of the split squad band members to go to. Uh, we're going to Rehoba, Rehoba Beach, there of uh, Delaware. I have a great ship. 
keep on yeah. playing. You, you're yeah, man. Stop. So I, I appreciate the time. Hey, keep in touch if anything's happening at the Hard Rock. 